0: Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, the biographer Danny Fingeroth. Fingeroth has been steeped in the world of comics for decades. He's written books about them, won awards for his work as a writer and editor of them, and frequently appears on the stupendously popular comic convention circuit. So it just seems natural that he'd write a book about the most famous person to step out of the world of comics, Marvel Comics' Stan Lee, who co-created some of the most recognizable characters in pop culture history. Fingeroth's new book from St. Martin's Press is called A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. You've spent your life in comics, so... You are the best and maybe are you the worst person to have written this book because you know it so well.
1: I like to think I'm the best. Naturally. What I bring to this, that I bring to all my books about the world of comics and pop culture, is I know how the sausages are made. You know, I've worked as a writer and editor and publicist and art director in comic books and related fields my entire adult life Mm -hmm. and I was a comics reader and fan as a kid and I was the perfect age for the Marvel Revolution in the 60s so I think I bring an insight into things people like Stan did and motivations and thought processes that even a highly skilled critic or academic couldn't just because they Uh, have not been in his shoes, and I have. I mean, nobody's been exactly in his shoes. He had a very unique life and career, but I have performed similar functions at the same company as he did.
0: Few people know the industry as well as you, and it does seem that you're a natural. I was being cheeky because I know it is sometimes hard, the delineation between biography, memoir, your book. It's a sort of collision course of both in a really great way. Were you afraid Of tackling the subject of Stan because he is such a larger-than-life character and somebody you knew and well,
1: here's the thing: I knew Stan. I was friendly with him. We did a lot of different kinds of projects together, but I never claimed, and I was not part of his intimate inner circle, so I didn't have that burden of sort of knowing him so well that maybe it would it would interfere with objectivity. Um, But I knew him you know, well enough that it. I think it gave me insight and gave me access to people that uh, I might not have uh, and to him in a certain way. It's an unauthorized biography. Mm-hmm. This is my first biography. Mm-hmm. And, and my advice uh, from people who were agents and editors was that it was commercially better to be authorized, you know, just in pure sales terms Somehow hmm. they thought that gives you more credibility.
0: And that was before he passed away Oh, in way before. That was about ten
1: years ago. So about eight or ten years ago, I actually had a meeting with him and some of his, uh, his people and uh, proposed it to him, and he said he would think about it. And he thought about it longer than I thought he would. He'd done a memoir in 2002, and what he said to me was... Um, if I wanted anyone to do an authorized book, Danny, it would be you. But I don't want anybody to do it. Hmm. Now, did he say that to five other people that week? I don't know. But um, every year or so, I'd send him an email or a call him and kind of go, yeah, I remember that biography. What do you think? And ultimately, he pretty much suggested that I do an unauthorized biography. I don't know if that... If someone telling you to do an unauthorized biography is sort of an indirect authorization. Right. So I, wor- I used that kind of half-blessing from him. Um, so my agent, uh, Kevin Moran, eventually found a deal for the book that uh, we both were satisfied with. And uh, when I told Stan about it, I said, well, you remember that thing we talked about? He said, I'm not going to tell people to talk to you or not to talk to you. I'll let people do what they want, but I'm not going to do any interviews. But then he did two interviews.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What made him change his mind, do you think? You know,
1: of course, you know, one can never really know. But I now live in the gentrified version of the neighborhood Stan spent his whole life trying to get out of Washington Heights in Manhattan. But he had a very sentimental attachment to it. It figured especially the George Washington Bridge yeah. and the movie theaters up there. Figured very much in his in his own memoir and in his mythology. So I would take pictures of the bridge, say the bridge at sunset, the bridge in the clouds, the you know, the bridge at night with all the light and I'd send him pictures and he would go, Oh, it's so nice to see them So I don't know if sending those to him kind of made him feel more sympathetic or like he wanted to talk or or if he just felt like talking. But if there was anything that I specifically did with that in mind, it was sending him those photos. I just know that one day I I said, you know, can we do an interview? And he said, yes. And then, you know, we had an appointment about an hour, an hour and a half in. He had an appointment. I said, can we do a follow up? And they said, yes. So probably did about three hours of, and I, I, as you've mentioned, I've known him for many years. And I'd interviewed him in the past, but always felt a little intimidated. And they, and so I never got very deep. And they weren't deep kind of interviews. They were more about writing technique, mm-hmm. or what do you think of this particular character and how it evolved. But in the interim, I'd actually done a lot of public events where I was his moderator at a, at a series of comic book conventions over a period of a, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I thought I had a handle on how to... Ask him personal stuff without getting too personal because I think you know you get too direct with people and they get defensive. But although it's my first biography, I've done many, many, many interviews with people over the, mm-hmm. pa- uh, the past 20 years. I packaged and edited a magazine about comics and animation writing and sort of always tried to drill down on what motivated people to do what they do. So I think I knew enough about Stan's history. Um, had read a million other interviews with him. And so I, um, I think I was able to ask him questions that dug beneath the surface uh, while not seeming so in your face that he would freeze up. And, and the other thing, of course, is everybody, but especially someone elderly, has automatic responses to questions. Because Stan's mind, even though he was in his 90s, his mind was very sharp. His answers were always witty and original and appropriate. But he would fall back to these automatic answers. And uh, one thing I pride myself uh, in doing in interviews in general is coming at things at just a little different angle to get people to think about this thing that they've said a thousand times, but maybe recall a detail or some other possible motivation.
0: Yes. I'm nodding my head because it's exactly the quintessence of biography versus an article. Because you, as the biographer, have marinated in this subject and this person for a lifetime. And I could read all I wanted to, but I wouldn't have that sensibility the way somebody who's really made it their business to dig deeper, but knowing the the finesse and well, the nuance uh, is uh, so hard.
1: Especially relating to follow-ups, because I could send you to interview somebody you've never met and you could do a credible job, but you'd have to have studied them to know the follow-ups and to go, when they say, I did this in 1947, You go, oh, yes, but didn't you do that with this other, whatever, you know, to have that background of knowledge and be able to do the, because follow-ups are often more important than the initial question.
0: So with the time that you did have with him, was there an example of something that happened during those sessions that you were particularly proud of unearthing or revealing?
1: Huh, You know, a lot of stuff I do is from a Jewish angle. You know, I've written a book called Disguised as Clark Kent, Jews, Comics, and the Creation of the Superhero. And Stan's is very much a kind of New York Jewish uh, depression, greatest generation story. Mm -hmm. Um, He's in some ways kind of the classic New York Jewish guy, although he would not often talk about it. But I learned enough about his past so that I could sort of find out you know he would say like well i uh, you know i had a bar mitzvah and i was able to actually find out the name of the synagogue which it turned out was most likely the institution up in Washington Heights that also had a theater club where a girl stan had a crush on was also studying theater which <laughs> led to like his early you know cuz he was very theatrical because he wanted to be an actor so that's I think that's where some of my research enabled me to ask him a question that got him to give a specific answer that led to other stuff, and, and the and, and I guess another thing I don't know if I'm if I'm you know quote unquote proud of it but one of his classic stories is that he went to Dewitt Clinton High School in the Bronx and he worked at the at the Magpie Magazine which was their literary magazine but he worked in the business department not as an editor. You know? um, so one day they were painting the ceiling, painters were painting the ceiling, uh, and they left the ladder and their brushes and paint and they went off to lunch. And Stan climbed up on the ladder and he wrote on the ceiling what he's always recalled as Stan Lee is God, which is pretty funny to begin with. And, and, anyhow, and, it's, and it's a great story, he's told it a million times. I said, So, but you were in high school and you didn't start calling yourself Stan Lee until you were working professionally. Were you calling yourself Stan Lee in high school? And he said, No, you're right. I must have written Stan Lieber as God on the ceiling. So I don't know if that's an earth shaking revelation, but it's an interesting twist on a story he's told a thousand times. Oh,
0: no. And that's the nuance that fans of biography love. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and that's most gratifying as a biographer, right, too, oh, sure. to dig, dig, find like
1: something that. a little different.
0: You had access to papers that. He sold them to Wyoming University. Is that it? Uh, I don't know.
1: If I, you know, I don't know the exact deal. But you know, whatever the arrangement was, the University of Wyoming in Laramie, which I recommend as an archive, you know, it has 200 boxes of his archives, which are remarkably unredacted. I mean, uh, there, there's stuff in there that yeah. you know. I mean, most of it does make him look good or neutral, but there's some stuff in there that does not make him look so great. There was even some personal information that I went to the administrators there and said, I appreciate that this is not redacted, but these particular numbers you might want to cross out you know um
0: that's something also interesting when you immerse i've helped correct inaccuracies in archives before because the archivist doesn't know the subject the way that's what
1: well the reason i went there and they want so one the university of Wyoming it's called the American Heritage Center and they're the greatest people and they have Barbara Stanwyck and uh Weisinger who's a famous comic book editor and uh SNA Films has a box there. That's Chaplin's Company from before United Art. You know? And they have a lot of um, accomplished screenwriters and music writers for films that aren't famous but have won academy. So they have an incredible archive there. But the reason I went, because to go to this place, you have to take a plane called the Vomit Comet, you know, which is <laughs> so you can imagine... Um,
0: a long way from the Upper West Side A long
1: way from the Upper West Side. So um, because I'd ordered stuff through the finding aid, and it just wasn't what I thought I was getting. And the thing that really led me there was a series of boxes that more or less said something like, radio and television interviews, 1947 to 1980. And they took me into this kind of almost time machine room with all this old 70s and 60s and 50s technology and they'd play this stuff and I have to listen to like 30 seconds and go, I want, I want this one transcribed, that one I don't, you know. So I found uh, like 1960s Barry Farber show interviews with Stan having a debate with a woman named Hilda Mossy, who was a famous enemy, you know, enemy of comics. And then another one with him and Jack Kirby from the 60s from WBAI that, you know, this stuff had gone on the air and, know, maybe Stan's wife was recording it at home. I don't know where these air chase, but I found a lot of material. And there's also a lot of material at the uh, Billy Ireland Cartoon Museum at OSU uh, in Columbus, which I can't imagine there being a better comics-oriented museum than the Billy Ireland. It's a remarkable place. And they have this fantastic archive. So not Stan's archives, but other people's archives with correspondence from Stan. That was very key.
0: It's exciting to hear you talk about it because that process of discovery, even on a subject where you knew so much, is just extraordinary. Yeah,
1: well, you know, the danger with archival research is the shiny object. It's like, I wasn't looking for this thing, but it's so cool, and then three hours later, oh, but I found... You didn't
0: know you were looking for it. I
1: found... uh, uh, While I was going through Milton Kniff's files for correspondence with Stan, I came across a 1939 letter on Mercury Theater stationery from Orson Welles, (laughs) from like, what's a 23-year-old Orson Welles thanking Kniff for a drawing of the dragon lady he'd made for him. At the Wyoming Archives, one of the main archives they have is Jack Benny's archive. That's true because when you say when people would say to Stan, "Why is your stuff in Wyoming?" and I can tell you why I think it is, he would say, "Well, good enough for Jack Benny, good enough for me."
0: Why did it go there? I was surprised. my
1: impression is that until maybe the past 20 years, there was really nobody on either coast in L.A. or New York who was that interested in pop culture archives or and specifically in comics archives. So now, of course, there's Karen Green at Columbia University who has made her mission to amass those kinds of archives. And they're very dedicated at, at the University of Wyoming. They have, like, this man-made mountain in the middle of the campus that is the archive. I mean, it's an incredible place.
0: Research takes you places you would never have expected, uh, right? Yeah. So all in, it was a decade that, you, that this book took?
1: Probably about 10 years ago I had the idea to do it. But, you know, I mean, I was doing a ton of other things, and this just seemed like it might... I was intimidated by the concept, you know, because I'd I'd written some short biographical sketches of Stan, and I I wasn't happy with them. In a way, it was easier conceptually to do a whole book than like a 300-word summary of somebody's life, oddly enough. So I went back and forth with the idea and back and forth with him, and, and I just kept coming back to it as something that seemed important and enjoyable to do so i'd i'd say i started thinking about it seriously um maybe 5 6 years ago then i wrote a very elaborate proposal about 5 years ago signed the contract about 3 years ago and then maybe really started focusing about 2 years ago and then, and then once he passed away, then I really, you know, for, for all sorts of reasons, that was all I was doing. And uh, I mean, you could say it was in the works way before he died. On the other hand, when you're writing about somebody in their 90s who's had some health issues, that he died on the day he died was a shock, but that he died, <laughs> you know, Pleasant was something surprise. I knew was even in the proposal. I said, you know, I said, well, if he dies before I finish this, then X, Y, Z, you know, I mean, it's, it was not... Completely unexpected by any means.
0: XYZ being you'd accelerate it or XYZ uh, being... Because um, you certainly had enough. To- yeah, it
1: accelerated or... or um, I wasn't sure what I meant when I said XYZ. <laughs> but, uh.
0: <laughs> so what happens next? I mean, now that it's out, what's it like to trundle around and actually have people react to it? And then- It's,
1: it's kind of wild because... Um, look, he's been famous since the 60s. And um, now people know him. Especially I'd say in the past 10 years, with those cameos in the Marvel movies, more people know him than ever before. Tomorrow the 12th of November is literally the year since he died. And uh, there's just been this interest in him and the book that if I'd done it four or five years ago, I don't I don't think there would be. Right. You know, there's some thing i guess obviously it's this incredible success of these marvel movies seeing him in all of them and unfortunately actually i mean i think part of it is some crazy stuff went on in his life in the last few years that was literally in all the papers
0: legal there was Uh, a lot of legal action yeah
1: legal action who was controlling his life and his money and his activities and you know, as I say in the book, you know, for better or worse, Stanley Lee kept us on the edge of our seats till, you know, till the very end. But So, I mean, I think that was part of the interest in his life, unfortunately, you know. And and, and if you're a 10-year-old kid, then the thing you're thinking about is, well, this is the guy who was involved in the creation of Spider-Man. But if you're an adult with an elderly parent, or if you are an elderly parent, you're sort of thinking, it was like, boy, I need to protect my mother, father, uh, uncle, and because it it, if someone as famous and as wealthy and as well-known as Stan can have these kind of problems then holy cow you know nobody is safe really.
0: Right yeah it's a it's a cautionary tale for sure yeah Yeah. so reaction has been positive what I've read. Reaction has
1: been very positive positive.
0: But does it feel like a weight lifted from you, or is it a different sort of weight well, now, now that I'm you promoting,
1: have to face people? I'm promoting I have to face people. You know, and as I say, Stan was mostly beloved, you know, especially by people who only knew him from the movies. Within the comics community, there was a certain amount of controversy. You know, he was not an artist, and yet comics, obviously, are a visual medium. So the questions that were almost irrelevant in 1961 when all they were trying to do was make a deadline and get a paycheck. The questions 50 years later of who did what when, who's entitled to how much in terms of money and pride and uh, you know official authorship and all those things like that become very complicated. And so there are partisans on all these different sides and uh, oddly enough, many of them uh, show up on the internet. Go figure, huh? (laughs) It's hard to imagine. So, you know, I mean, I've had, you know, my favorite reviews are really the ones that say it is fair and equitable and gives all the sides equal say. And in in other words, so there are some things I have in the book that don't make Stan look so good, um, but he was a real person in a cutthroat business, in a business that really... For the first 25 years he was in it was considered maybe a half-staff above pornography. I mean, he, his famous stories, and not just him, but anybody in the business, you know, they'd go to a party, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm in publishing. Oh, what kind of publishing? Oh, well, you know, oh, children's publishing. Oh, I love children's books. What kind of children's books? Comic books. Uh, I'm gonna go get a drink, you know. I mean, it was just, you know, and the and and Stan and his peers had to put up with that their whole lives, so now you know it became respectable, and then there's the graphic novel phenomenon, and and Scholastic is publishing graphic novels and and, and YA comics, so there's controversy surrounding Stan. So, I've, I've you know, I figure there'll always be somebody who will have a question. Or a speech about it, and 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 these conflicts. I mean, they're real, and some of them are unsolvable. I mean, some of them do involve he as a check for X dollars, but mm-hmm. others involve what some people see as an ethical or more or moral responsibility. Stan was in a complicated position, as being a creative force, but he was also related to the owner of the company, um, a distant cousin, but still related. Editor, art director. You know, so he was management, then he became publisher, and yet he still always was involved creatively. So his roles were complicated. I think that's part of Marvel's success, though. At other companies, especially a company like DC Comics, they always had a heavy multiple layers of bureaucracy, especially once they became corporately owned. Mm -hmm. And so doing anything in them was like turning a battleship. Whereas Stan, you know, had an answer to his publisher, and his publisher usually let him do what he wanted. His publisher was his cousin. Um, And they didn't always get along, but at the very most, it meant that two people ought to make a decision, as opposed to 20 committees. And so Marvel could really respond to changes in the marketplace, to changes in creative personnel. If they had an idea on Monday, they could implement it Tuesday so it really made them very nimble in a way that other companies uh, were not.
0: Well, and he fronted the industry in a way that made it accessible for somebody like me who isn't right. a, a fan, isn't a, you know, day-to-day, well, he, voracious reader.
1: because of his personality and his skill set and the popularity of the characters, and of course you can imagine this is a source of conflict, uh, that he became not just the voice and face of Marvel but of the entire comics industry. I mean, there's not even a a close second. Right. Right? It's like, well, who's the most famous person in comics? Stan Lee. Who's the second most? Uh, There's a million talented, wonderful writers and artists and cartoonists, but there's nobody with that visibility of Stan.
0: Well, so now what do you do?
1: The weird thing, sort of a passion project of mine for the past six or seven years, has been Jack Ruby. The guy who uh-huh. killed Lee Harvey Oswald.
0: Interesting.
1: Who I've written a full length, 180 page graphic novel that an artist named Rick Geary is attached to as the artist, and we're trying to raise funds for it. And as you may have heard, there's some controversy regarding the Kennedy assassination. I've
0: heard about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Even more than about who created Spider Man. <laughs>
0: Well, okay, so I think you answered the question. We you know what you're up to next because you've been up to it for a yeah. while now.
1: So, he had a a weird life and a very interesting life. So that that's one of the things I'm going to be working on.
0: That's writer Danny Fingeroth talking about his new book, A Marvelous Life: The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. My conversation with him was recorded in Sherman Oaks, California on November 11th, 2019 almost a year to the date since the passing of Stan Lee. You can read more about Fingeroth and Bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Sheree Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio.